he was a person gifted with the capacity to make radical decisions very briefly. And this was the case. He just wanted to go to Japan. He believed he should go to Japan. When people says, why are you going to Japan? He says, I don't know. I just must go. And so it was in regard to Vatican II. He innocently took up Vatican II as if the church was ready for it, whereas the opposite was the case, especially in the hierarchy and in the Vatican. So another issue that contributed to the problem was the fact that Pedro had spent his 20 years in Japan The church wasn't particularly fussy about what was going on in Japan at the time. So he was out of the swing of things. He had never lived in Rome. He wasn't into politics ever. And he wasn't interested in ecclesiastical politics. So here was a man coming who had the capacity to make big decisions and would see, well, this is the thing to do. It's obvious, you know. And um, as I say, where he needed to be working diplomatically, he, he wasn't a diplomat. He was totally good and he was totally wanting to be at the service of the papacy. And so what he used to do was to come and present his ideas and leave it with them to sort them out. But in the meantime, the brethren around the world had got wind of what they should be doing. Basically, this issue of working for justice uh, in the service of faith and so forth. And they were working away, and he was now in Rome, stuck there. (laughs) They were in the field, and you could see how chaos could develop, especially in the situation of John Paul II, who was emerging from a totally different situation, was a totally different kind of person. And their personalities were too far apart to be able to mesh, if you like, or Mm -hmm. to reach an agreed point. So Pedro felt frustrated the Pope felt enraged. The bishop- Let's just talk about that because I think it's interesting that people know what happened with John Paul II because it's not a pretty story. Mm. And even for Pedro Rupi, I mean, his own Jesuits in Spain, some of them like, yes. turned. So would you tell people that story? It's, it's quite heartbreaking. Well, so much around all that. John Paul II was trying to hold the church together. And so he also had this terrific belief in conscience and freedom of conscience and freedom of religion. It's been said of him that he was more concerned for for conscience outside the affairs of the church than inside, that he held a very strict line, which again is not surprising, emerging out of his Polish background and all the rest. And he'd a feel for Eastern Europe that few other people would have had. So when people stepped out of line... He just got annoyed. And what he would have done himself would be he would dismiss if he'd had, if it was his job, he would have dismissed people. But instead of that, he did the right thing and said, you should dismiss certain people. Pedro found it very hard to override a man's conscience, even if he felt, ah, this is not very bright and so on, but I'll do my best to dissuade him from doing this. But if a person feels that this is what God wants them to do, I'm not going to just silence them. So that's where it um, went. And there are John meetings. Paul felt that, and the Spanish Jesuits who hmm. went, that yes. the Jesuits had turned Marxist, basically. 
they turned Marxist. And even leaving out the Marxist thing, they felt that the society, they, uh, the Jesuits, the order um, that they were in now was not the one they joined. And I've heard people, Irish Jesuits, saying, you know, I'm free of my vows. I took them to a society that no longer exists. Now we have this, that and the other and people going around and they're standing at the barricades and you've got your Peter McFerry giving out to the government and whatnot. Um, this is not the way we do things. We simply provide instruction in the faith. We give the novena of grace, but we don't get into the the political dimensions of the novena of grace or what Francis Xavier would have done if, etc., etc. So in all good conscience, then, a group from Spain who are quite, we would say, conservative, but there's nothing wrong with conservative in one sense. They were not open, on the other hand, to what was going forward. And Pedro would say, I don't want any of this to be my idea. I want only to implement Vatican II. So what was being reflected was the struggle within the church between the spirit of Vatican II and the orthodoxy that um, was present before it. We're still enduring all that. And so you take something like the role of the laity, it's clear enough um, that... Lay people are the people of God and the clergy are there to serve them. That's the model, but that's not the one that operates or has operated so very well. And even when John Paul came out with his encyclical on the role of the laity in 1989, I think it was, a lot of people within the hierarchy didn't take it seriously. They just kept on going the way they were. So that it makes you realize the whole thing about conversion, that it's hard work and it makes terrific demands on people and makes more demands on those who are, shall we say, more right-wing than others. And how do you manage? Do you wait until everyone is ready or do you go ahead trying to be in a situation of what Pedro would have been calling it creative fidelity? In other words, you've got to be faithful and you've got to be creative. And that brings up the whole issue of what kind of God do you have as an image? If God is a static God who got the world going and got the church going and then sort of sat back to look at it, that's one thing. If you believe that God is the God of the galaxies and of 13.8 billion years of human history or um, evolution and that kind of thing, and that God is intimately involved, as would have been seen in the Hebrew scriptures to be the case, that God was involved and God wanted people to do the work. He says to Moses, you go, you're another goer. You just go and tell Pharaoh what I tell you. So the God of Pedro Rupe then is this, <laughs> well, unimaginable, but totally imaginative God who is watching and engaging in every aspect of world history, trying to get people out of their armchairs and going. As somebody said years ago, there were no armchairs on Calvary. Well, there's not meant to be any armchairs for the Christian. They're meant to be saying with Pedro, how to do, what ought I do? And that that should be their daily call. And that's the way it was with him. Yeah, let's go back to John Paul, because we have to sort out now what John Paul did. So John Paul wasn't too nice to this man. <laughs> I know you're struggling. I think you're incredibly charitable. I'm struggling to be as charitable as you were, because it wasn't nice what happened to Father Rupi. No, it was difficult. 
If one didn't know the full story, and nobody does because there's documentation presumably in Rome, perhaps from John Paul II and perhaps from Pedro Arupe trying to sort things out. But factually, what do we know? But factually, the Pope didn't know what to do with Pedro Arupe. And with the spirit that was um, was moving and going forward within the the body of the Jesuits, if you like, he found this difficult, and he would have preferred obedience than striking off into worlds of experimentation, which is what we did. And not all our experiments were were bright and brilliant, and not all our ideas were kosher, if you like. So people came up with new ideas about abortion and they had difficulties with humane vitae and the whole thing about uh, the forbidding of birth control. And, and what Pedro, he would try and he would say, now I want everyone to obey humane vitae. The Pope has spoken because of his openness to the Pope. And then he, he added in, and the, the Pope doesn't want sort of servile support. We mustn't simply parrot the encyclical and then he sends this off. And what they made of it in Rome, they were probably furious that he was playing both sides and telling our guys not to flinch completely, if you like. So <laughs> anyway, he, coming back to... He could to, be diplomatic when he wanted to. He, there were bits of diplomacy and there was an extraordinary amount of apology. He would always apologise if he felt that he had missed the point. So, for instance, in a general gathering of the Jesuits in 1975 when the decree on faith and justice went through, an issue had come up about whether the brothers in the society and the people who were not professed and the professed should all be on the same level while retaining the distinctions between them. And a letter or a note came from the Vatican saying this matter should not be explored. But Pedro went ahead and did explore it because he felt that in the Jesuit constitutions, once you're having a general congregation, it isn't the general who makes the decisions, it's the body that agrees on something and the general would, go, would have to go along with it or otherwise it wouldn't be done. So um, he went on and just annoyed Paul VI considerably and then saw more clearly what he'd done and then apologised abjectly and all the rest of it. Now, with regard to John Paul II, it hadn't, it hadn't got that far. They say of John Paul II that he wasn't very familiar with religious groupings. Uh, he was much more clear in regard to diocesan clergy and the, the order of things and the hierarchy. And if you say this is to be done, that's done. Otherwise, you're in trouble. So a free-floating approach, he wasn't able to cope with it. And he also had so much else to do. We were a minor uh, player in his game, if you like. Do you know, when you read the biography of JP2 by um, Gustav Weigel and so on, you see that the, the Jesuit issue only occupies about 20 or 30 pages out of 600. It's to keep that in mind. But anyway, he asked Pedro, when Pedro offered to resign, he said, he was really saying, I don't know what to do, so stay on for a bit. Now, just so Pedro offered to resign because of what the Spanish Jesuits had No, completed. it wasn't so much the Spaniards as, um, because he, he worked with the Spaniards and he was so charismatic a figure that it wasn't that he won them all over, but he gained their allegiance, okay. which was a huge thing to do. 
And he would put him out enormously and you'd see there's nothing of Pedro Arupe getting in the way. It's just the issue. And the issue is basically one about Vatican II and how religious congregations implement it. So, so why did he offer to resign? He offered to resign because he knew from his short meetings with John Paul II and from what one picks up in the Vatican, which would be a vast amount um, about the discontent within Vatican circles and the Vatican Curia about the way the Jesuits were going. Right. And I, I had my own problems about it. Do you know that I began to wonder, are we running a parallel church the church isn't saying very much about how to cope with the problems of our times. The Jesuits are headlining it. And which church do I belong to and where am I? And others may have felt the same thing. So it was a, a time of turmoil. And Pedro realized that going on was not going to sort out the problem. And so he took advice on the issue from his advisers, and he decided to offer his resignation, which, as I say, the Pope would gladly have accepted, except he didn't know what to do next. And eventually, poor John Paul then, an attempt was made in his life, so he got hospitalized. And three months later, uh, Pedro Rupi gets his stroke and he's hospitalized. And you get a lovely letter from John Paul II to Pedro Rupi saying, we're in, stuck in the same boat together kind of thing, and I wish you well, and I pray for you, and I offer my sufferings, and I ask for yours, your prayers for me, and so on. So that was going on. Some people would have said that if he had allowed Pedro to resign, Pedro wouldn't have had the stroke. You can't prove a thing like that. Pope John Paul II is a very interesting man. There's a book written, which nobody seems to know much about, called When a Pope Asks Forgiveness, The Mea Culpas of John Paul II. And it came out around about 91 from this journalist who was fed up trying to find a suitable topic. Everyone had talked about John Paul II until they were blue in the face. And suddenly he discovered when he went back over all the talks and um, meetings that John Paul II was that whenever the Pope saw that the church had been wrong, say in regard to yeah. Galileo, say in regard to Luther, yeah. Zwingli, the boys, he apologized. Yeah. And there are 94 indicators in that book of apologies. He apologized even to women. I know his apology was very inadequate and didn't sort out the problem, but he tried to apologize in his way. So, Calvin Beck, what happened, as I understand it, he didn't accept the resignation, but he did place, you know, a safe pair of hands and okay, Calvin so, Beck. Um, what happened was that the Pope began to get better after the assassination attempt. Pedro got worse with his thrombosis and whatnot. And the Pope was informed that Pedro would have to retire um, and Pedro, I think, himself helped to compose the letter saying that he was off the scene. So the Pope was left stuck then. What would he do with the Jesuits? And he decided, and again, you've got to consider the multiple other things that were going on at the time for him. He decided that 
he couldn't take on any of the supporters or the team that Pedro had around him because they might go off in a worse direction than Pedro. Pedro at least was somewhat biddable. Some of these guys mightn't be. (laughs) Again, you're dealing with personalities. So he thought about it and he said, well, I can put in a vicar, somebody to replace Pedro, but I don't think I can put in a Jesuit vicar. And then he realised that that would be utterly dreadful and it could lead to mass resignations and all kinds of stuff uh, from the society. So what he did was um, he chose a man called Paolo Dezza. And Paolo was almost blind. He was very bright. He was 80 years old, I think, at the time. And he asked him to hold the fort until a suitable time for the election of a new general. And so I was out in Somalia at the time, sweating my way along, and I came across a newspaper in which I was told that Pedro had resigned and um, Paolo Dezza had taken over. And I wondered, would I be coming back to a... Was there going to be a Jesuit order? We had been suppressed before in 1773, and here we are... 200 years on, maybe the same thing will happen. Because Polodetza wasn't a Jesuit. He was. was Yeah, he was. He was actually the confessor for Pedro Arupe. And he was a man who was trusted. And he was also thought to be a moderate, if you like. Definitely not left-wing, but manageable. He, He would know what to do. And so he, with extraordinary skill and diplomacy, he stayed... at the helm for two years until permission was given for a new Jesuit general to be chosen by the society. And what had happened was the Pope, to his astonishment, found that the Jesuits weren't heading off to resign or buy themselves fancy clothes or new cars or something like that. They all were obedient. They accepted Paolo Dezza. They accepted what the Pope had done. And John Paul II, and I think fair play to him, he, at one stage when he visited Pedro Arupe, who was not much able to talk, he said, your enemies were wrong. I am deeply moved by the obedience of Father Pedro and of the whole society, that they are being obedient to the church and they are accepting this weight or cross, whatever you like to call it, in a spirit of true obedience to the Pope, which is what Ignatius would always have asked of the society. So just to be clear, John Paul II (laughs) did acknowledge that the enemies, when he he had enemies, were wrong. He didn't say, I am wrong, (laughs) so far as I know, but that's where I don't have access to the papal letters and so on, or statements. But he indicated in a way in which Rome indicates we were on the wrong track and we're getting back onto the right track now. Rome doesn't tend to say we were completely in the wrong or anything like that. If you take something like... um, So he didn't get a mea culpa? Well, you see, it depends on how you interpret diplomacy. If you want the stuff straight up, forget it. If you want to be able to read between the lines, that's your only hope for survival within the Vatican circles, or it was. So to clarify it then, I've listed in the book 
something like eight or nine or ten occasions when the Pope showed goodwill towards Pedro Arupe and the society and conveyed his sympathies in a way that was genuine when Pedro died in 1991 and got somebody to speak at Pedro's funeral praising him. That's, to my mind, as good as a mayor culpa or an apology. The man was bigger than he was given credit for because most people didn't know, and I didn't know until I began to do a bit of research, that the Pope had, in fact, been very solicitous about Pedro Arupe from the time that he got his stroke. I don't know if that goes far enough. No, that's, for, that's very interesting, you know, and I think that is interesting. A lot of judges wouldn't know this, no, that's and right. some of them don't want to know yeah. it. You know, the way you get the view, that yeah. man was not fair to, yeah. and you would say, and that's true, but we're all not fair. Yeah, and that's very interesting. <clears throat> it is new material and very <clears throat> interesting material, yeah. to be fair. So Father Colman back then was elected. Oh, yes, well, 1981, Pedro got the stroke. 1983, there was a general congregation, as we'd it and Peter Hans Kolvenbach was elected and he did great work by keeping a low profile and assuaged the anger within the Vatican and the negativity towards the Jesuits because it was there and it stayed there and so much so that the story is and again it's hard to prove these things but it wouldn't surprise me when the election of the successor to John Paul II was being held. It was Bergoglio, uh, Francis, Jesuit, or Benedict. And that an email went around among the cardinals, don't vote for Bergoglio. And the people who might have sent that around would perhaps be people of very high principle and a very strong allegiance to the church that they knew and couldn't bear the thought of him. Anyway, it was a neck and neck between Benedict and Bergoglio in 2005. And Bergoglio said, look, I, I don't want this to go on. This is going to split the conclave. I asked my voters to vote for Benedict. And that's what happened. So there's a kind of largesse that floats around. And um, Pope Benedict was very supportive of the Jesuits and very encouraging and saying, you know, you work at the peripheries and that's where you need to be and you're at the crossroads of culture and you do stuff that nobody else wants to do. So that's how it went. Peter Hans Kolvenbach was the diplomat, the real diplomat, never put a foot wrong and at the same time was true and authentic in what he said about Pedro, you know. And the vision went on and the faith that does justice is embedded now in, oh, in the Jesuits. Sure, yes, yeah. yeah.